Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Welcome back to another uh, weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined by my uh, indisputable co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on? Ah, I love it. I love it. Well, a couple things. One, happy Earth Day. Uh, and, you know, sideline, happy 84th birthday, mm. Dad. Uh, I'm not sure he actually watches, but maybe he should. And uh, we're going to do the reveal. On Earth Day, we are wearing the Bitcoin Honey Badger socks mm. because... It is the honey badger of money. It is resilient and tenacious and indisputable, the, the champion. It's been holding up pretty well, honestly. Um, it's really just been treading water. I mean, it's, I was just checking the price of right about at 40,000. It's been there for a couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah. So, anyway, lots to talk about. We might, you know, we have so much to talk about. We might not even get to crypto. I know, today. we might not. Uh, and I actually, I want to start with a very non crypto subject, which is Netflix, actually. Uh, so, Netflix. Uh, you know, stock went, so Netflix announced earnings earlier this week. I was telling you before, I almost have a little bit of an emotional connection to this company and stock. When I moved to New York and I was like, I got to start investing. Netflix was the first thing that I bought. So I used to pay attention to it very closely, actually. Um, and they trade, you know, they trade based on subscriber numbers. And even more than, you know, they, they segmented out domestic versus international subs. And Netflix, like for the last, at least as far as, far as I've been following it, they come in line always with, with revenue and EPS, but nobody really gives two craps it's 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 all about their subs and this was the first time yeah. they ever had a net loss of subscribers the big asterisk there they lost 200,000 subs but they deplatformed 700,000 people in Russia right so but still it would have been a huge miss the street was expecting like 2 million net additions so their international subscriber position and if you know if you if you listen to uh, Reed Hastings talk about it i mean he talks about structural flaws in the business hidden by covid and I, I think the big takeaway for me outside of just Netflix is it was pretty wild to watch a stock like Netflix, which is in FANG, drop this precipitously, right? It is down peak to trough. I mean, the high is, I think, exactly $700. And, you know, yesterday it was trading at like 220 I mean, what did you think just watching the bottom drop, drop out of Netflix like that? It was pretty nuts. To watch a company erase $50, billion dollars in market cap in two minutes, okay, 36% drop, most of that overnight when nobody can react to it, which that's the dirty little secret of markets these days. Almost all the moves happen overnight. And you know, if you're trying to trade during the day, you're, you're not getting much movement. So the, look, I, I, I find it really interesting that there's all these things about, oh, we have to protect the little guy from things like, you know, Bitcoin and, and crypto and because they're too volatile and, and they, you know, there's not enough price discovery. Really? A $150 billion company with, I'm not sure what their numbers are, like 140 million subscribers or Over something? 200. I mean, some yeah, 200, like 200, 200 million subscribers. And, and they lose... 200K, right? That That's like, you know, a bunch of people who signed up for the free trial decided oh, I'm not going to pay or, and is it shocking to anyone that as prices have gone crazy in everything else, that if you got to cut somewhere, right, there's only so much money in your paycheck because that isn't going up, right? It's, it's interesting that paychecks don't adjust at the same rate as, uh, 
you know, the things that you buy. But um, I don't know. I, I find markets right now to be very casino-like, right? They are not functioning very efficiently. And that's troubling. And it's, it's why, you know, we've, we've been more hedged with a D, capital D, than, than normal over the past couple of years. And it, it's feeling better. It, was, it felt pretty bad uh, when all of the, the nominal price increases happening. That, that's another part of the challenge here is, is the money illusion, right? Stocks, quote unquote, you know, make new highs. Well, only because we denominate them in toilet paper. So denominated in gold, stocks are the same price they were in 1996. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing, you know, when it comes to stock valuations, right, there are two components. There's the, uh, you know, earnings, right, corporate earnings, and then there's valuations that stocks are getting in. Um, it, th th this was a big example or reminder for me that, uh, you know, when there's a reset in terms of valuation that can that can hit really hard, right? Like Netflix actually beat yeah. on earnings per share and they were right in line with revenue. Yes. It was like slightly above or below. But you know, th this was uh, this was a valuation thing, um, and the well. And to your point, one of the challenges is we've been in Stupidville for valuations for the better part of a decade, right? I mean, the valuations of of Fang are stupid, right? These, the Apple doesn't grow double digits, and it trades, you know, in the high twenties, even got up to thirty five times earnings. That's stupid. I mean, that, that, and, and so what you had to do is you had to come up with these metrics like, you know, eyeballs and, and subscribers and, and it's all about market share and who cares if you make any money, just get lots of customers. Well, you know, the Jeff Bezos, yeah, we lose money on every, you know, book, but we make it up on volume. Ha ha ha. No, it doesn't work that way, Jeff. You actually have to make money. And they did find a way to make money, although that stock's been dead money for two years now. So... Uh, it's funny, I was on uh, CNBC with Mr. Wonderful uh, two and a half years ago, and uh, Netflix had just hit 2,500 bucks. And, and I said, you know, this could be dead money for a decade. And it went crazy. He was like, oh, that's just so stupid. And as it went to, you know, 3,500, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe it is stupid. But now it's back down with a two handle, and, uh, or maybe it crossed back to 3,000. I don't know. But, uh, it doesn't sound as stupid because gravity does rule. You know, at the end of the day, you have to make money and deliver it to shareholders in order for your stock price to go up long term. In the short term, you can certainly have these these bubbles that occur. Um, and it's funny. I I was I did. Uh, Mornings with Maria at freaking oh dark thirty. I hate the six o'clock. I always am like shocked that you're on there. You sound so good on those things. They're like my brain doesn't go on that oh, early. You are so good. I, I man, I, I I I hate it. I mean, I, I literally hate it. But you know, for Maria, I will do it because she's the yeah, best. She I mean, she's she's literally the best. Um, and even though she's on vacation and Dagan was doing it, but you know, I, I my my line here is that you know, fangs bite. It's their nature. So at the end of the day, if you bring a snake into your house, it will bite you. Now, it may take a while and, and you may think it's a very nice pet, but at the end of the day, fangs bite. And I think this, this belief by investors that there is no price 
too high is wrong. And you know, Howard Marks has this great line, right? There's no company good enough that you can't screw up by paying too high a price. None, zero, there's nothing. And that's, that's what we're seeing here. I agree. I also, I, the, the other thing too that I would say, I mean, valuations have obviously gotten uh, completely out of whack. But the other thing I would say too is they start to make more sense if every investor is pricing in just aggressive growth. And I think one of the, uh, yeah. you know, one of the big changes that folks are going to have to digest is that we're not headed into a growthy environment, right? If anything, I mean, there's inflation, uh, you know, but, but real genuine slowing signs of economic growth and the Fed is starting to tighten at the same time. Uh, last, last little anecdote about, uh, Netflix here is, you know, Bill Ackman pretty publicly lost, you know, took a pretty big bath uh, on this, you know, over $400 million. Well, and I, I'm kind of surprised, I have to say, that he punted. Yeah. I, I you know, that that's, that's not in his playbook historically. He's like, I'm going down with this ship. I mean, Valiant was the great example. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Urban I'm life. right, the market's wrong. So, to, to just take it on the chin like this and say, yeah, all right, fine. Um, that surprised me a little bit. So that almost, almost makes me want to buy it. But uh, I, I almost wanted to buy it too. I, I, my, so one thing that I know, so note, have noticed about Netflix or my opinion on them is they actually do a really good job of investor relations. They do a really good job of telling their story. And, uh, you know, that's why they, for years, they convinced investors that Netflix stock would move on two things. It was subscriber growth and whenever they would hike prices. Because whenever they would hike prices, they would lose zero subscribers. So it was just, you know, that's right. the Warren Buffett thing, pricing power. And um, it, they, they started to change their tune a little while ago. And that's when they started to release numbers of their, uh, you know, of individual shows. Uh, and my thought then was just that they knew that their subscriber growth was slowing, so they needed something else for people to pay attention to. But I wonder if, I mean, if you go and read the transcript of what was said during the earnings call, it's like so bad. I almost wonder if they just wanted to clean house and get all of the bad out here. No, look, ab you know? absolutely. But I, I think the thing, when you look at this chart, right, it looks like, oh, it, it, it's back to a value level. This stock was $8 before QE started. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now it's two hundred and twenty dollars. It didn't grow enough in profits. I, I actually don't think they make real money. Like I think they have, you know, accounting gimmickry to to to, to show profits. But I, I don't think they actually make a lot of money. And this stock is not cheap by any measure, even at at this you know fire sale. So the the danger is that it becomes kind of a pariah. Um, and the real issue for me, just because I, I see it, um, there's not as much great content. Yeah, being there's created. not. Um, there's a lot Content's of not very good. like garbage. I mean, like garbage stuff that it's got political overtones and, and politically correctness. And I'm like, ah, nothing, not interesting. But the real thing is watching my adult kids. So, you know, I have the unique family, the two adult kids and then the little guy. So I get to see everything. Like I see Fortnite and how amazing that is. And then I can see, I, I watch my daughter scroll TikTok now, hours, hours and hours and hours. I mean, so there's only so many hours in the day. And I would probably be a buyer of ByteDance before I'd be a buyer of Netflix.
In the private market. I mean, because you can't buy it in the public markets yet, but you could buy in the secondary in the private market. Yeah, that's obviously subjective. But the, the reason I actually sold my Netflix as original, I think the content has gone downhill. Uh, they, have, yeah. they have a very different philosophy and culture than like HBO. HBO is crushing it, actually, I think. Um, yeah, Showtime's good, too. Uh, speaking of uh, weird <laughs> uh, impacts of QE, um, you know, Japan has, I mean, they've effectively, uh, you know, engaged in yield curve control. They've, they've sort of been, they've been doing yield curve control before this as well. Uh, but, yep. you know, you and I were talking before we got on here, there have been huge moves in the dollar-yen uh, pair, right? Um, so, so maybe even before we get into what's happening today, what you know, how do investors think about the yen? Right? It's that's always been a bit of a funny one for me, you know, with a non-finance background. Like, why the yen is kind of viewed as this safe haven asset? Like, how do investors think about the yen in general? Well, it, it, it's it's a great question, and and the reality is, there are two different investors. There's the average investor that that looks at it in the newspaper and and can't understand why this is perceived as a safe haven and and doesn't really understand international finance and but the reality is there's so many uh, firms and funds that were using the Japanese financing market because the the rates were so low and for for so long it was the first one to go to zero interest rates and people would borrow in uh, yen and, and finance all kinds of crazy stuff from hedge funds to, to international trade. And, and so what would happen is in, in times of stress, people would basically get margin called and they'd have to convert back to yen to pay back these loans. And so it would strengthen, which was totally, you know, antithetical to what we thought should happen is that this is a crappy country with a crappy currency, which... It is a crappy currency, and and it's becoming crappier and crappier all the time. And yeah, I love this yield curve control. They have not had control in decades, right? They have been you know hanging on by their fingernails and biting and clawing and scratching. And you know, I was a, a good friend of mine um, who ran a big hedge fund in in London for many, many, many years. Uh, he had a, a um, boarding school mate, right? You got to call him a mate because they're, they're in London, uh, who, who was on the board of governors of the Bank of Japan. And every Christmas, uh, my friend would get this um, uh, Christmas card from him saying, you know, cryptically what was going to happen in the next year in Japan. And he had, you know, in, insight into to what they were thinking. And so I happened to be with Hugh in in London the day after Abe San got elected in in 2012 and the yen was 80 I think it was 78 79 and yen yen dollar and Hugh turns to me and says you know the yen is going to be lower the rest of your life I'm like wow that's a big statement and and here we are at 128 and sure enough, and, and the, the reality is it's going to probably 200 or 250, not tomorrow, but there is no way out. And we've talked about this over and over and over. And this is true of Japan, it's true of Europe, it's true of the U.S. There is no way out for these governments other than to buy back all the bonds, to crush their currency, 
by printing. In fact, I, I did have on my, you know, keep calm, we'll print more t-shirt this morning. And my wife said I couldn't wear orange and black because it's April. So uh, I'm wearing blue. Um, and, uh, but I did have that on because I was going to talk about this because I, I figured we'd talk about, about this, this topic. Look, these central banks have no choice but to print. This idea that they're going to tighten in the U.S. and how many interest rates? We're going to have 10 interest rate hikes now. Bullshit. Take the under. They are not going to be able to tighten. They can try, but at the end of the day, Japan in 2007, okay, 2007, which is a long time ago, said QQE is over. We are done buying bonds. We are done printing money. Really? Really? No, it's still going on today. Their balance sheet expanded by more than the Fed, by more than the ECB. And it's, they're at 137% of GDP. The Bank of Japan's balance sheet is 137%. We are now at 100, and we say we're going to shrink the balance sheet. No, we're not. We're going to 137. Then we're going to 177. There is no other choice. And anyone who thinks differently just is bad at math. So walk me through, because I mean, I sort of understand the argument here. It's a bit of a leading question, but why why do they have no choice, right? Like what if the central banks were to just say, look, uh, you know, we're not going to sell off maybe our entire balance sheet right now, but we're done purchasing. Do those bonds, you know, do does the face value of the bonds just take a gigantic hit or how does that, what's the cascade? Who, no, because here's the thing. All these countries are running massive budget deficits. So they have to issue new bonds yeah. every day. Every single day, every week, every month, mm -hmm. they have to issue new bonds. Who's going to buy them? Mm -hmm. Are you going to buy them? Am I, I going to buy them? I wouldn't them? buy them. <laughs> I'm not buying them. Mm -hmm. You're not buying No one's buying them. The only buyer, right? It's, central banks are called the buyers of last resort for a reason, right? No one else is going to buy them. The Chinese aren't going to buy them. The Russians certainly aren't going to buy them. Who's going to buy them? There was one time a couple years ago where... You know, Chinese were selling, Japanese were selling, and suddenly there's this big purchase of treasuries by Belgium. Like, Belgium? There's like 11 people in Belgium. I mean, how? Well, it wasn't Belgium. It was Saudi putting money, you know, in a tumbler. Uh, you know, and it's so funny. Everyone talks about, oh, Bitcoin's used for money laundering. Really? You mean different than Deutsche Bank and all these European banks? money laundering that they do for all of the bad people all around the world. Um, and then they get fined for it and they pay these massive fines. I think, I think the number's up to like, I'm pretty sure I have this right, $385 billion in fines for money laundering, like admitted money laundering. And they want to point the finger at, at crypto and say, oh, those are the bad guys. Really? I know. I, uh, you know, speaking of just, you know, central banks buying, buying things, th I mean, this is a pretty interesting chart. This is central bank gold purchases. This is going back to March of 1992. Uh, I mean, and you can see, right, uh, something actually, there's uh, there's that great site, WTF happened in 1971. We're talking about the closing of the gold window. And now this is uh, actually, you, you for those of you who aren't following along on, on video, you can see that the tons of uh, central bank gold uh, holdings, or it's going down starting in March of 92, going down to, and then it bottomed in uh, around 2008. And then it's been a steady uptrend well, ever Michael, since. Michael, what, what, what were you just saying, right? right? When did Japan say 
they were going to stop doing QQE Mm -hmm. in 2007. I mean, literally at the inflection point of this chart. And it's it's a 45-degree line. Well, maybe it's maybe it's 35 degrees, but that is a that is a consistent realization that fiat is being turned into toilet paper. And there's this great there's this great picture that I, I use all the time. It's a cartoon. And it shows a, a tennis net and it shows the Chinese on one side and the the Americans on the other. And it, it shows the Chinese throwing paper across the net and the Americans throwing gold back across the net. And if you're in a currency war, that's how you win. You exchange paper for rock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the, in the child's game, right, rock, paper, scissors, paper beats rock. And in real life, rock beats paper. And money, real money, and gold is the only money in the world uh, before Bitcoin, uh, asset that exists in the absence of a liability. No other thing that we think of as money is money. It's a currency. There's a huge difference. Currencies are backed by debt. And this is proof positive that the central banks realize that the, the Ponzi must be funded. And Ponzi-nomics means relentless issue of currency. And you think prices are high now for stuff? Whew, just wait a couple of years. Yeah, I speaking of prices going up, right? Uh, I mean, we talked about this on last week's roundup, but again, uh, you know, this is the reason why it matters. Uh, this is food prices. So what we're looking at actually here is um, wheat prices, uh, you know, US dollars per pound. And this goes all the way back to 1929. And they show you kind of spikes in yeah, world, the spike around World War II, uh, the U.S.-Russia wheat deal uh, back in you know '75, uh, droughts, Arab Spring, Great Financial Crisis. This is the this is the greatest uh, spike nominally, right? So it's not yeah. real, but um, you know nominal spike. Well, again, this is a massive chart crime. Mm-hmm. Like this chart, it's, yeah, it's like a double chart crime <laughs> because it needs to be log scale mm-hmm. because it's long term, and it. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's just a terrible chart crime um, because the, the spikes when you deflate them are really not that bad. But the good thing about this is, there is you know, the bad thing is food prices will rise temporarily. The, the good thing about it is there are no move up and then plateau, right? You always spike come back down. Now, the, the trend is inexorably higher, but it's stair-stepped. If you, if you look at it, right, you have this, this period from 29 to 43, where it's basically flat, and then you get a jump uh, during war times, and then it goes flat post-World War II until 71. Whoa, wait a minute. What happened in 71? Oh, then there's this massive jump, and then we fluctuate around really a, a, a a doubling, not a threefold, a doubling of prices. And then it's basically flat until, oh, when? Oh, oh, seven. We were just talking about that. And then, and so it's, it's this stair step. And if you took any commodity, it looks the exact same way. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. 
One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. There's, I had, there are a couple of great, uh, I forgot to bring this up during the, uh, the Netflix discussion, but I actually heard this quote that made me think this week. Uh, I, I really liked it. It applies to crypto. Maybe we can get into a little crypto at the end here. Um, but it's, you know, about web two companies is that you are at the mercy of your stupidest competitor. And, uh, <laughs> that like really resonated with me because, Love it. you know, I, like on the one hand, I'm, I'm a, obviously we're not going back to a non-streaming world, but the criticism, right. Of these, of the cable companies at the time when streaming was taking off was, this is not a viable business model. What you're going to end up with is the exact same thing that we have now. Right. And and they were right. It was like Netflix was first. Then there's this proliferation of services. Now everyone's like, ah, screw that. I don't want to pay 10 subscriptions here. So it's going to get bundled and we're going to. And, and the kicker is Netflix is rolling out ads. It's like, yes. it's like, yeah, they were all, yes. they were right. But congratulations, yeah. you were right. And you've lost a shit ton of shareholder value. But so you were right all the way home. But um, it's just funny. It's it's and the, the equivalent in crypto, especially is people are willing to pay sky high salaries, grow way too fast, do all this unsustainable stuff. And you know what? That can last for like two or three years in the correct, in the right market environment. So well, it, it'll last as long as they're stupid money. Right. And, and that is the problem, right? Is, you know, I'm, I'm in this business. You know, we raise a nice, small, little venture fund. And when we launched More Greek Digital four years ago, which feels like 40 years ago, I mean, it's unbelievable how, how crypto years are, are different. But, you know, there were no even $300 million funds. Now we just had two, two and a half billion dollar funds raised and multiple billion dollar funds raised. And people are, I mean, I talked to a a company yesterday and I won't name names. (laughs) They have less than $1 million of of revenue. Less than $1 million of revenue. And they want half a billion dollar valuation. And there are people who shall remain nameless who are willing to give them that. Now, maybe, 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 maybe they have the equivalent of the Mosaic Netscape browser. It's possible, right? It's a pretty interesting technology, maybe. But literally, five hours later, now I couldn't make this up. Literally, five hours later, I was talking to one of our venture partners who said, you know, I, I have a company and they do this and this. And I'm like, that's the same company, same technology, same idea, coming at it from two different ways. 
Exact same. And they already have a million and a half dollars of revenue, and they only wanted a $70 million valuation because they hadn't been discovered by these big venture capital funds that wanted to write big checks. And I, you know, Keith Raboy, who, who's amazing, uh, has been talking about this, that, you know, everybody says, oh, well, you know, we, we need to have discipline, but, but not, not me. I mean, you, you all need to have discipline, but, but, and it's, it's like the old um, St. Saint Augustine quote, you know, Lord, let me be chased. Just not yet. That's great. That's a great quote. I, uh, I've been listening a lot to the All In podcast. I'm not sure if you've listened to that one, um, but it's good. I, I, I appreciate their perspectives on, um, you know, just what it's like to be, especially, they, they really represent like the Silicon VC scene, in my opinion, right? You've got Chamath there. He's a public and a private market investor. You've got David Sachs, yeah. uh, these guys, Jason Kalkanis, and, um, you know, they're, they're talking about kind of how uh, VC has changed over the years. Obviously, valuations are much higher, but I think discipline on both the investor and operator side, right? If you view all of this through the lens of a power, not a power competition, but like leverage in between entrepreneurs and investors, yep. then a lot more yep. of this starts to make sense. And when there's a lot of really cheap money, it's just swung probably too far. I say this as an entrepreneur, like it's probably swung a little too far in the way of uh, entrepreneurs uh, for the time being. And it's got to But see, here's, here's the crazy thing. And there was this, this great venture capitalist. Um, the, only, the only negative is he was a dookie. Um, <laughs> And, uh, Proper you know, but, but he was a really good guy and, and he's out in Silicon Valley, but, but he didn't live in Silicon Valley. He lived kind of in the outskirts, in the foothills, um, back before Mountain View became famous. And, and long story short, he raised these little small funds and he told me this thing that I, I tell us all the time that, that I, that I think is so good. He said, you know, investing in businesses and growing businesses is, is kind of like families, so when you're a young family and you have limited income and you want to go out to dinner, you're on a budget, so you, you save up for a couple months, you drop the kids off at grandma's, and you go out and you split an appetizer, you split an entree, you, split, you know, both get dessert, you have seven cups of coffee, you, you spend four hours and it's glorious. It's just a great evening. When you get a little wealthier and lose the budget, you want to go out to dinner? Yeah, yeah, we're just going to go to McDonald's. And it sucks. And, and that's kind of what happens, is when you, when you have to be disciplined, when you have to stretch, when you, when you have to, you know, work for less than you're worth, and you have to not afford the greatest computer. And I had this, I had this fun experience uh, two days ago. So when I launched Morgan Creek and I left the not-for-profit world and I, and I was making no money at the not-for-profit and, you know, launched this company with, with not a lot. And our office was literally an unfinished back room of a friend of mine's hedge fund. And we had a paper sign on the door and we had plastic folding tables and laptops. And I, and I loved it. I mean, it was just awesome. So I went to see a, a buddy of mine who just left that particular hedge fund uh, to start a real estate company, and and he's got a single office. And I walked in, you know, how much do my office? And it was plastic folding tables from Home Depot and laptops. I'm like, oh my god, I want to go back to that. And 
it there's just something about struggle that makes you stronger. And I think when people get, you know, it's like somebody said today, uh, if you can't name five flavors of LaCroix, you're not really a startup. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Yeah. I'm with you, man. I, and you know, there's, there is a dislocation too. Like, I think we've talked about this. Like Fred Wilson's written a lot about how public and private markets don't move in lockstep. Yep. Sometimes they get dislocated. And I think that's true with crypto as well. Um, like in between, like our version of public is uh, liquid tokens, the trade, right? And then there's also, yep. uh, you know, private equity, right? The equity of startups in this space. And there's a gigantic dislocation in between the, the valuation of uh, companies in crypto and tokens. And, you know, yeah. it's funny because a lot of people looking outside in to crypto are like, ah, these crazy tokens and nutty valuations, but they look really cheap, frankly, compared to the equity of uh, crypto companies. 100%. And that's, that's why you know, we have the flexibility. 70% of what we do is equity, 30% is tokens. We're doing a deal right now that will get announced soon that you know, we're, we're putting some money in, in the equity, but we're also getting a, a huge discounted purchase on, on the tokens. And, and it's all about coming up with, with you know, reasonable valuations, which are hard. And, and it's super hard when you got other people willing to, to write bigger checks at, at, at higher prices. I will say I've been impressed that there are entrepreneurs out there who don't take the highest valuation all the time, right? They, they really want partners. Uh, my favorite line, you know, from, from the Winklevoss twins is, uh, you know, we don't want a cap table hacker, right? We don't want someone to just come in here and, and just throw their, their money around and their weight around because they can, you know, we actually want, <laughs> it was funny, we want a crypto native, I guess the only time in my life I'm ever going to be called a crypto native because I, I'm, I'm old, right? I, I didn't grow up with this. I'm not a digital native. Um, I mean, I've gone all in, fine, and I love it, and, and I'm, I'm having a blast, but definitely not not a digital native. The uh, the, the investment in, I mean, just A, the, the perception there, but B, I, I think that the ones that went all in, like the Morgan Creeks and you know all these, all these crypto native funds, you guys are going to have such a structural advantage to funds that try to get in later because there's a, there's a big um you know block work you know we're, we're bootstrapped but if we were ever to take outside money it would not be from it would not be from it would only Sequoia. be from us come on it would only be from morgan creek dude, exactly dude. yeah i mean come on <laughs> i know it would be, but honestly it would be because why, why would i because yeah i i you rejected me once yeah. <laughs> you rejected me once at the very beginning so i you know you can't reject me again i would never mark I would never. if we ever raise money i you're the first one that i will call yeah, it was all it was all yano <laughs> it was all yano and that crappy other podcast he does i know I mean, honestly we, we should, though, shall not mention it uh, <laughs> shall not even mention the name Actually, i mean I, I can't even believe we're talking about yeah. Actually, I will because we're we take the high road. I will. Pl- they've got an episode coming up with Travis Klang that I inside. Apparently, it's great. I want to get your thoughts on the merge. Um, I feel like that. Let's- Travis is amazing. Yeah, and, he is. You know, we were early, early, early investors, and uh, and that's another one where I, I tried unsuccessfully to convince him to be part of the Morgan Creek Empire. Haha, <laughs> we're not an empire. Um, but I should have tried harder because that that would have been what would have been an awesome combination. I love Travis. He's great. Uh, but you know, uh, not to give away the episode, but they end up talking a lot about ETH and the merge in general and how bullish of a catalyst that really is. And I, you know, I've yep. struggled with this because I'm of two frames of mind, right? Like, 
one, I've kind of watched two halvenings, right? And the patent people discount the halvening and, you know, people argue it was not priced in, in my opinion. The ETH merge, right? If you look at the way the merge actually works, right? It, it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty crazy. It, it, it at one time satisfies a whole bunch of different narratives at one time, right? The ESG narrative, click, because it's not proof of work, it's proof of stake. It moves to being a deflationary currency, click, right? Im- immediately. The cost, yep. uh, you know, of transacting on ETH, boom, goes down. I mean, it's like a really powerful upgrade. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm very ner- like everything that we were talking about before this, right? The central banks, central banks are looking at labor market. They're looking at uh, equity valuations. They're saying, hey, we've got more room to go down. I'm going to hike until we break something. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we got these, these fundamentals in crypto. Uh, and I will say one side effect, too, of all this money coming in. It this I mean, Mark, remember 2018, 2019? It was like, OK, maybe Bitcoin's the only thing that's going to work. Nobody's saying yeah. that. Everyone's, what are people saying now? It's overvalued. It feels frothy. There are some projects that aren't great, but nobody's like NFTs are going anywhere. Nobody's like DeFi is going anywhere. There no, are all you know, these other so things, funny. you know? It's so funny. It's so different. I agree with you that the the, the smart people are are saying exactly what you say, that there's going to be a But there's still, and I was just with, you know, all 25,000 of them down at the Bitcoin conference. There are people still saying, Everything that's not Bitcoin is a shit coin and it's all going to zero and everything we're going to be, we're going to be mono chain. I'm like, come on, guys. Look, I love Bitcoin. Look at my sign. I love Bitcoin. It's awesome. But it's not the only thing. And this idea that, you know, we're going to kill all the innovation that's happening on Ethereum, on Avalanche, on Solana. I mean, it ain't happening. And that's why this, this investment that we're looking at, I think, is, is so amazing. Because look, in a multi-chain world, the most important thing is making the experience invisible, right? I, I, if I had to understand how to make TCPIP work so you and I could do this show, there'd be no show. Because I'm not going to, you know... And, and, and it became invisible. But it wasn't invisible 20 years ago. And even 10 years ago, it was really tough. And the same thing has to happen with cryptos. There has to be the equivalent of this. And, you know, this is our, like, window to invisibility in the internet and, and the mobile net. And that equivalent, whether it's wallet or um, gateway or whatever, but it has to bridge all these things seamlessly. And I don't, I can't unplug my MetaMask and convert to a wrapped ETH to do a wrapped Bitcoin. To, I, I, my head will explode. And if my head explodes and I have a little bit of knowledge, imagine my 84-year-old today dad who loves crypto but he's not gonna figure all that out, nor does he want to. And and I got in this debate with someone yesterday. And they're like, "Yeah, but but if but if he uses Coinbase, then he doesn't own Bitcoin." I'm like, I, I, I just whatever, dude. I that's just such a like. Okay, I have most of my I have most of my Bitcoin on Coinbase. Why they have vaults? Like I the yeah. I have to trust either my own operational security. Okay, yeah. Two comments. So one, the way I've started to think about. Uh, Bitcoin maximalism is um, kind of the same way that I feel about uh, 
like re the really hardcore like libertarians in America. Yeah. In, in yeah. like, I don't always agree with everything that I they say, but I'm glad they exist because they do bring this like ve ah, very important perspective and, perspective and point of view, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, there was another. This came from. Uh, There's a great episode of Bankless. They brought Vitalik on. He actually defended. He he steel manned uh, the the Bitcoin maximalist point of view. I think he was referencing like a Slate Star Codex, right? Whatever that that blog was, and yeah. he, he basically said something that resonated with me, which was the difference between kind of the right view, the conservative point of view, which aligns with like gold and and Bitcoin, and but also just right conservative type political views, and the yeah. left is that the right and read gold bugs, Bitcoiners, approach it from the perspective of the world is a bad place and I need to be prepared essentially for like the apocalypse. That's like the, that's the underlying mental frame yeah. of thought, right? Yeah, the yeah, world yeah. is a yeah. hostile environment. When it all goes to shit, this is what I'm going to have. And and yeah. the the left and maybe the more optimistic like type of, it, it's, it's almost like a naivete in the most extreme form, right? Yes. Every, yeah, the, yeah, the world yeah. is good. We don't need to worry about like incentive. People are generally good. And, and I think that's a pretty good way of, of framing a lot of this, actually. Because I'm glad that Bitcoin exists. I own a lot of Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin. I identify with that community. But I also believe in other... And also just the fact that people... people the one thing that the Bitcoiners say that kills me is Ethereum is like a test net for Bitcoin. Dude, who are you... Who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes? Look at the transaction. Look at the transaction volume on. Yeah. And and the one I hate going up against Lynn Alden because she's so smart. And I. Yeah. But the one thing I just can't make up my mind on is lightning. I understand from a first principles reason why it should work, mm -hmm. but it's not. I'm sorry. People point to the, the relative growth of the lightning network. Look at the look at the actual absolute statistics for yeah. how much payment volumes are being done on Lightning versus Tether alone or any of the stable coins out there. It's, yep. it's come on, it's like less than 1% of the, the yeah, volume. No, it, it's just it, not. It, it, it is, and, and it, it, but it's coming. And, and that is the one, the one thing that I can get behind is this idea of, of Bitcoin, the network, becoming the TCP IP of the trust net, right? That, 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 it, that it does become the rail. And then on top of that, sit the other things and they stack. And that's different than a multi-lane highway, which maybe that's the model that happens and not the, not the stack like the internet. And if we if we think about it from the old monetary rails, and you and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? There's no tech in fintech. There's been a lot of money created, a lot of wealth, but it's not tech. It's it's using 80, 90, 100 year old technology, Fedwire, ACH, Visa, you know, those are those are not high tech. I mean, Visa runs on a freaking mainframe on COBOL. Half of the banking system still settles up in C++ and all these other languages that have they, they need to be retired. And what has to happen is the equivalent of new rails. And Lightning is, as we've seen, a strike is a great example, right? I literally can send money anywhere in the world, okay, over the Bitcoin blockchain, 
It's only instantaneously converted in back and forth and into and out of Bitcoin. But that 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 rail is new tech, and it gets away from the Fed wire. And it, and look, I, I've told this this story that you know when I did my first transfer over to to fund my my Coinbase account, Bank of America held my money for fourteen days. Fourteen days. Which just proves two things. One, it ain't your money. It wasn't my money. It was their money. And it says very, they said, read, read the document. It says very clearly, we can, doesn't mean we will, but we can hold it for 14 days. And, and I wasn't even doing anything bad, right? I mean, I was just funding an, a, an account, but they don't want, they don't want the deposits to leave the system. Yeah, that's the bottom. Here's the, and I should stop talking. I get that this isn't good media, right? I'm not coming out with a strong opinion. I believe in lightning or I don't believe in lightning. I keep flip-flopping, but like, I'm sorry, I'm flip-flopping on it. You know, if you look at the way adoption has occurred in other ecosystems outside of Bitcoin, uh, it's tokens. And you can say tokens are illegitimate. Not everything needs a token. I would agree with you on a lot of it. Replace the word token with ownership and equity, right? The way that yeah. these networks are incentivizing use is to give away part of that network. They give you upside directly in the product that they're building. Yep. So when you look at it like that, um, Lightning is just like any other L2. And you can bet these L2s that are launching on ETH, actually this is a pretty interesting question, but I bet you they launch tokens, right? That's how they're gonna, that's how they're gonna bootstrap their adoption. It'll probably be better than just the dump that they, that, you know, there'll be lockups and whatever. They'll, they'll do yep. it in a smarter yep. way that's going on, on, undergoing right now. But Lightning doesn't have that. And and the the reason for why you should use Lightning is right now, if you're ideologically aligned with Bitcoin, in the future, it is to get away from all of this stuff and escape Fedwire and for censorship. If, if the world really continues on this trend of censorship, then Lightning will be a super, super attractive asset, I would say. Yeah. But maybe, yeah. like, maybe, that's, maybe that's the reason you just haven't seen it right now because there's no, it's like, Clearly, the way that uh, these other ecosystems have grown is the growth mechanism is the giving away of the token. Lightning just doesn't have that. And you can, you know what? As I say that out loud, that could be a bull case for it too, I suppose. Uh, it's still growing. No, no. And again, that... But see, this, what we're doing right now, mm -hmm. dialogue and debate in search of truth, that's how you find truth. Right. Right? And and I, and I was having this conversation the other day with with some, some maxis and on a, what do they call it, toxic happy hour or whatever. And... And it was cool because the ones guys said, well, you know, I just don't agree with you, but but I'm glad we can have this conversation. And other people were typing in, you know, it's really nice that you guys can have a respectful conversation. I'm like, that that's the norm. Yeah, that, that's, that's the norm. Before, before lockdowns and before QE, the norm was that you sought out people with a different view than yours so you could learn and you could explore truth. That, that was the norm. And now it's like, oh, you're dead to me. You're left, I don't like you because I'm right. Or you're central, I don't like you because I'm left or right. Are you joking? I mean, it makes no sense to talk to people that you agree with all the time. It just makes no sense. It makes no sense to say, I have an opinion and I will never change it, regardless of the facts. It makes no sense to do what you just did, which is ask a big question and say, oh, man, if that's right, then maybe I need to. That's how it works. And the idea that, I don't know, it's, it's like, you know, when you're four, 
you ask 200 questions a day. When you're 40, you ask four. 200 is too many. <laughs> I know, because I've had four-year-olds. But four is too few. We need to be asking questions. We need to be having dialogue. We need to engage directly with people we disagree with. I agree. Because without it, we don't get we don't get advancement. We don't get truth. And I don't know. It's, it's why I follow Zuby. I love this guy. I mean, he speaks his mind and he is consistent and he's honest and he's nice and he's cool. And he could crush my head like a bug with his two fingers, but he's so strong. But, um, and, and people just rail on him because they're like, you know, you're, you're this and that. It's like, no, I'm not none of that. Right. Just me. And you don't have to like me, but respect me and, and come, you know, have a conversation with me. So I don't know. I, I just think the whole, I know you got to go cause we got a hard stop, yeah. but, um, I know as always best hour of my week, best hour of my week too, my friend. I will see you same time next week. Cheers. Signing off. Bye.